0: Welcome back to our Busting Addiction and Its Myths podcast. I'm Bruno Jay, and I have updated the introduction to our episodes in order to address an issue that we cannot ignore, nor do we want to. It looks like COVID-19, the coronavirus, will be with us for some time, some say for another year or two. People are as frightened as they ever have been. They seek safety for their families above all, protection from the virus and from economic insecurity. But many families also face an added burden drug addiction, and alcoholism in their own homes and what to do about it. There's something you should know. We, Safe House Rehab Thailand, were founded on the idea of safety. We hold on to the truth that clients deserve to come to a treatment clinic where they can at least feel safe and sound. Devoting ourselves to safety first gives us the firm foundation upon which everything else is constructed. Hence our name, Safe House Rehab Thailand. Thailand has been recognized as one of the world's safest places to be during the pandemic. Further, we at Safehouse have made the right adjustments so that clients and staff remain and feel safe and sound. Masks are mandatory, as is social distancing, mandatory hand cleaning, daily blood oximeter readings, which is an early warning measure, and if by chance someone, anyone doesn't feel well, the local hospital in Bang Bangbong is only minutes away. My podcast, Busting Addiction and Its Myths, is dedicated to serving families of still-suffering al- addicts and alcoholics by providing evidence-based advice and insights so that you can make a better informed decision on what to do and what not to do. We are sponsored by Safe House Rehab Thailand, dedicated to a modern approach to recovery, which means that we absolutely outperform traditional rehabs when it comes to diagnostics, technology, and aftercare. To learn how we can help, just visit safehouserehab.com where we post the latest news. I'm Bruno Jay, here to introduce you to Season 5, Episode 1 of our podcast, Busting Addiction and Its Myths. I shall call this episode, What Happened One Night, and more about that later in this essay. Our mission is to bring the truth about addiction to the families of addicts and alcoholics, to dispel myths that could jeopardize the chances of recovery, and to guide families on what they could do to make a difference, and what to let go of as misguided, albeit well-meaning ideas about addiction and recovery from it. This topic seems to be endless. There is a never-ending stream of stories to tell, one after another, from a story that will absolutely break your heart to a story that will inspire you and renew your hope for a better future for all loved ones in your family. We started this series exactly one year ago and have uploaded one episode a week to virtually every podcast directory you can think of, from the biggest like Apple and Google to the lesser known like Stitcher and TuneIn and more. In the meantime, we have slowly but surely built an audience of several thousand listeners, and for that I am personally grateful to to you for tuning in. Our listeners tell us that we have given them fresh insight on topics that make them feel uncomfortable and are often painful to discuss, that they feel relieved that the word blame is useless in this context, and that knowing they're powerless over addiction is actually a very liberating idea. I realized a long time ago that the innocent people who love their addict or alcoholic have no clue whatsoever about what their loved one is actually up to when out of sight, but definitely not out of mind because they're thinking about them all the time. They don't fully appreciate, if at all, that an active addict's life is completely taken over by his addiction, that the most important and only driver is to feed the addiction, to pursue the drug, to get the drug, to get and stay high, period, end of story. Wait, you say, it can't be that simple. Surely there's more to it than that. Well, there is. There are many addicts who appear perfectly normal on the outside. They work hard at keeping the secret, but they're churning on the inside, barely able to contain themselves until they get the relief they seek from their overwhelming craving. These folks might be called high-functioning alcoholics, and here is a real life story to illustrate the point. I shall call this What Happened One Night. Charlie Uh, a longtime friend in the ad business, relays this tale of adventure which took place in New York City in the 1980s when the city was fueled by, quote, greed, sex, and cocaine, close quote. That's when I got to know him. I wasn't yet sober then, and one day he disappeared from my life, and I'll tell you that story in a minute. There are two aspects to the story. One, it demonstrates that one's loved ones have little clues to what their addict is up to out of sight. And if they did find out, they'd all have a heart attack and never get a wink of sleep ever again. And second, it shows that when we go around the bend, we court danger and even death in ways we would never even think of when we're sober. Charlie came from a prominent New York family who was connected to the big players on Madison Avenue, the cabal who ran the big ad agencies of the day. I got to know Charlie when we worked at the same ad agency on Times Square, which was a squalid street scene at the time, and yet it contained some high-end buildings such as a nice hotel and my building where I had a corner office on the 26th floor. 1515 Broadway was our address, right in the heart of Times Square. Charlie was super smart, so he didn't have to do much to rise above the typical ad man or woman of the day, and he didn't do much. I so admired his brilliance and his eloquence. Compared to my common sense approach and occasionally insightful arguments, he was clearly way ahead. Yet we made fast friends and ran around town with the ladies and also on our own. But that's when we really ran into big trouble. Our girlfriends were a moderating influence, even though they did share did their share of drinking and doing coke with us. Charlie had started that he had had shared that he had been seeing a counselor about his drinking and cocaine use. And apparently, his counselor told him that he was a high-functioning alcoholic. So he took that to mean that he continued to keep doing what he was doing, but do less of it. Because ad agencies were, and still are, the buyers of the media time and space on behalf of their clients. We had a lot of clout with the media, which was then largely based in Manhattan and still is. For example, and this is where Charlie's story starts, we got invited to dinner um, on aboard Malcolm Forbes's yacht, and we were taken for a sail around Manhattan Island with a slight detour around the Statue of Liberty. It was an amazing evening. The yacht was 93 feet long, had a helipad on the stern, and was painted a royal blue with yellow trim. Side thrusters got the boat to sidle up to the dock perfectly without the hint of a bump against the tires hanging over the side of the dock. Dinner was great. The women were beautiful. Champagne, vintage wine, filet mignon, sea bass, coke, cigars, live jazz, sunset, all the lights on the buildings and bridges are all on, all around the island. A magical, perfect night, just as the gods intended. Not a hint of trouble on the horizon. Well, not until Charlie started on his way to his home in New Jersey in his hot sob 900 Turbo. I had already said good night to him by that point. He stopped at a bodega on the west side at about 11 o'clock to get a can of beer for the 45-minute ride home on the west side highway, which would take him over the George Washington Bridge and on to Fort Lee along the Hudson River, where he had his apartment. By now, of course, Charlie's good and drunk, and he's high. Can of beer in hand, he walks out of the bodega to where his car is double-parked on the street and watches as his car keys leave his hand and land on a subway grate embedded into the sidewalk, then slide through the grate into the darkness below. He's so drunk that he's beyond panic. No way can he get the keys back, although he can see them with the aid of a borrowed flashlight hanging up down in the hole. He gets into the car with the help of a bent coat hanger through a partially open window and hopes he can get into the glove box where he thinks he might have a spare key. He can't get into the glove box. Two street cops approach. He hopes they don't see that he's wrecked, but all they want for him is to move his car. He explained that it's no way he has to make it home to retrieve his spare key and he prays it's there somewhere and one cop says okay we'll give you an hour to move the vehicle or gets towed to Brooklyn. That's quite the break right? Charlie takes a cab to Fort Lee which is about 30 minutes maybe not even and now has to wake up the Greek landlady to let him in because of course he has no keys. She's not happy to see him at all. Once in his apartment, he passes out from the booze and the coke in the stress of the evening. He wakes up at 6 a.m. and takes a cab to a place where, oh, hell, he can't remember. I can't remember. He left the car, but has probably been towed to where? Brooklyn? He's not sure. So he's off to find the car, which has been towed to an impound lot in Brooklyn, and now has dings on it. And how the hell did that happen? And he ends up paying the fine gentleman of Brooklyn Navy Yards tow 175 bucks, which was real money in the 1980s and, and still is. But today today was a Monday as the Forbes dinner took place on a Sunday night, so there goes a phone call to postpone a meeting at the office. Where did it all go wrong? Had he not been drunk and high, he would not have stopped at the bodega for the can of beer. Had he not been wrecked, his keys would have stayed in his hand. Had he not had to find his car, he would have saved his work day. All of this he hid from his mother. When she later asked him about his night, he told her about the great evening, but omitted the back half of it. The insane part of it. So that's all she saw—just the front half of it. This version to his mom served to reinforce the idea that he's a high-functioning alcoholic. He thought, for all the times I knew him in New York, that that's what life was going to be like—one insane, insane thing after another. Then he got arrested for assault on his girlfriend one very fine late in Chelsea at another after at an after-hours club, and there are plenty of them. His girlfriend found him dancing half-asleep on the shoulder of a very large woman. And Charlie hit her, hit her, his girlfriend, with a chair after she pushed him off the other lady. So he gets arrested and he gets thrown in jail. And he gets charged with, uh, with assault. This is a very mild story. This is a story about a well-to-do young man. Other alcoholics don't have the advantages of social class and money to smooth out the consequences as Charlie did. Even after Charlie's assault arrest, his mother had enough influence with the East Side police to reduce the charges to simple, non-aggravated assault. So she kept enabling him all the time I knew him. He never had a bottom, as far as I could tell, and even though his mom was often worried, she never confronted him, impressed, and never even suspected that he was a raging alcoholic and addict. He never lost his job, but didn't progress much either for all the promise that he had once showed. Now there was an intellect degraded by abuse. There was a once confident, appealing man who devolved to become arrogant and insecure at the same time. There was a friend who I came to love and pity all in the same breath. There was a friend who took a risk he had no business taking. Charlie vanished one day in the summer of 1988. He has not reappeared. I often think of what might, might have been for him and for me had it not been for this disorder. There is potential for escape from its deadly grip. There is also the possibility of a lonely death. I don't believe that Charlie knew he had a choice. So what we learned today from today's adventure is that 1. The addict is a genius at putting up a normal-looking front in order to deceive his loved ones that he's okay. He's even told that he's a high-functioning alcoholic by a professional. 2. His life, however, has been taken over by his addiction. Chasing the drug, getting and staying high are all that really matter. 3. Despite his outward appearances, he's insecure, anxious, depressed, and unstable. It takes quite the effort to disguise his inner shame and turmoil. 4. His loved ones have no clue as to the crazy life he lives and the needless risks that he takes, especially once he goes on a bender. 5. Addicts and alcoholics of affluent families are often shielded from the worst of the consequences, at least in the short term. Enabling brings its own punishment, however. It simply and always delays the inevitable. Thank you for tuning in today. This podcast is sponsored by safehouserehab.com. Safehouse Rehab represents the modern approach to recovery founded on safety as our first priority. We absolutely outperform traditional rehabs with a sophisticated intake protocol, application of new techniques, and a more robust aftercare program.